Today on Shtetl, we talk with author Jay Michelson about embodied spirituality, LGBT activism, and the BDS movement. And we're also going to find out about a very old and kind of spicy Yiddish novel from 1850s Poland and lots of great music, of course. So stay tuned. And to listen to this or past episodes of Shtetl on the shortwave, you can download them from iTunes or stream them from shtetlmontreal.com. Welcome to Shtetl on the Shortwave. I'm your host, Tamara Kramer, and this is a little bit of uh, Hebrew Kowali music from the Sufi tradition by Shai Bensour to get us started on this uh, lovely Friday. And uh, Shai Bensour uh, has been recording in India for a long time, and he has Kowali musicians who've learned to sing some of the songs in Hebrew as well, so it's a kind of interesting mix of pop and Sufi traditional music. And uh, today we have a, a pretty eclectic show lined up for you. Uh, I bet you've never heard of Joseph Opatoshu's 1921 novel In Polish Welder. I, I haven't heard of it either. That's why I can't really pronounce it properly. But uh, it's what Polisha Welder in the forests of Poland and Michael Wex is going to tell us why we need to save this very sassy Yiddish novel on the second half of the show. Um, but first, we're going to be talking with author 
Jay Michelson. He was in Montreal this week uh, at Dorche Emmet Synagogue to talk about Judaism and sexuality. And Jay Michelson is uh, the author of many books, including God versus Gay, The Religious Case for Equality, Everything is God, The Radical Path of Non-Dual Judaism, God in Your Body, Kabbalah, Mindfulness, and Embodied Spirituality. And his most recent book is Evolving Dharma, and uh, I've been reading his articles in the foreword uh, for a number of years, and I'm always relieved to hear his perspective on, on issues related to religion in modern times and to the politics surrounding religion in North America and in Israel. And um, I think that uh, he's really worth checking out. You can read all of his articles and find out more about his very impressive biography at jmichelson.net. So I encourage you to, to check that out. We we chatted on the phone. Uh, in uh, he was in New York when we spoke, and I think a lot of us, when when we think about uh, Buddhism and, and Hinduism, we're aware that that these traditions have something to say about the body with meditation and yoga. And so, in this first clip, I asked Michelson if he feels Jewish tradition has something to offer when it comes to living spiritually through one's body. If you look at most Jewish observances, even through a traditional lens, they're strikingly embodied. So uh, keeping kosher has to do with what you eat. Uh, how Shabbat is observed has to do with what you do physically in the world and what you don't do. And this is quite unlike uh, a sort of conventional understanding of religion, which says that it's about the spirit and not about the body. And I think some of that traditional understanding has been lost over the years under the influence of other religious traditions. And we're kind of coming back around to it uh, by way of these non-Western traditions, uh, such as yoga and, and others. And I, I think that's really an interesting moment. Uh, Judaism's always learned from other traditions. We've taken our, the foods that we eat on our holidays are all things that we've taken the traditions around us. And the encounter with meditation and with yoga and with Asian religious, or Asian spiritual practices, I should say, has really enriched uh, Jewish spiritual practice. So in my book, uh, God in Your Body, I kind of bring together some of the non-Western material with some Kabbalistic material, which, with some halakha and some midrash, uh, to really suggest that the body is not an impediment to spiritual progress, but an enabler of it. Okay. So aside from some of the things that we've taken from other cultures, the way that Judaism speaks to us through our bodies is through things like kashrut. Are there other examples that you could give? Another, actually, you know, there is a chapter on sex in the book, and I thought that that would be the one that, that people skip to first. But actually, they tend to comment more about the chapter about going to the bathroom. Uh, you know, one of the one of my favorite blessings in the Jewish tradition is the Asher Yatsar, the bracha that you make after you after you go to the bathroom. And it's a short blessing, but it's really wonderful in that it recognizes that our bodies are are precious and are fragile also, and it's an opportunity for gratitude for the for the health uh, of the body that we can feel. And you know, if you if if anyone has spent time you know in a, in a hospital or with any kind of uh, digestive or other kind of problem. You know, you, you too tend to be really, uh, really grateful when things get back to normal. Actually, there's one teaching on this, which I think is kind of profound. There's a Buddhist teacher, Thich Nhat Hanh, a Vietnamese Buddhist teacher, who said that when you have a toothache and it goes away, uh, for a little while you're very grateful that you don't have a toothache. Um, but how many of us wake up every morning grateful that we don't have a toothache? 
you know, remarkably, the Jewish tradition has tools for enabling that kind of gratitude, whether it's Asher Yatsar itself or whether it's the blessings which are recited every morning, uh, which are connected to the body, to, you know, to straightening the legs when you get out of bed and being able to see and being able to just be alive. So those are some examples of how uh, in the Jewish tradition the body can be a, a vehicle for a, a greater kind of awareness. I hear New York in the background. <laughs> yeah, I can close a window. No, it sounds uh, you're good. You're still going to hear it, but I'll close the mind. window and see if that dims it out. Hold on one second. It's okay. I'm starting to realize that one of the holiest places for me is in a taxi. And so hearing taxis beeping in the background is really, it, it makes a lot of sense, I think, for this interview. Um, so at the talk that you gave here in Montreal the other night, you talked about the erotic economy of traditional religious life. Can you expand on that? What do you mean when you say erotic economy? Sure. I think a lot of people, um, when, they, when if they're not particularly religious, they associate religion with being sexually repressed. Um, and sometimes that's true. I think one of the things I was talking about uh, at Dorsche Amet was um, how the more traditional one tends to be, regardless of one's tradition, Judaism, Christianity, Islam, whatever, one tends to want to regulate sexuality more. So the more traditional you are, the more you want to regulate sexuality. But the repression, if that's what it is, is only one side of the equation. Uh, the other side is where that energy goes. And I think one of the reasons that we've seen an increase in traditional religious practice, and certainly that's true in, in Judaism, it's certainly true in the Montreal Jewish community, uh, but around, around North America as well, um, and in other traditions too, certainly evangelical Christianity in the United States and so on, one of the things that those kinds of traditional religious practices bring is a real ecstasy, a real fire, a real kind of juice and juiciness. You know, and, and that juiciness is not different from arrows. That's just arrows in a different form. I mean, this isn't something I came up with. This is something Freud noticed, uh, you know, almost 100 years ago, that that there is an there is an eroticism of prayer and of daily life, and there is a real that fervor uh, that's that's typical of traditional religious communities comes from somewhere, and it, 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 that's why I call it an erotic economy. It's almost like an energetic flow, to use a sort of California term for it. Um, but it's, it's as though, you know, the energy gets, gets uh, sublimated or moved from one place to another. And I think if we don't recognize that, it's hard for progressives in particular to really uh, create a, a vibrant alternative to some of these more traditional religious structures. It's not about the traditional religious structure, in my understanding. It's not about the theology, and it's not about the intellectualism. It's about that fire and that energy and that commitment level. And that's, that's been true, I think, for, for hundreds of years, ever since there have been progressive religious movements. They've struggled to keep up with the energy and the enthusiasm of more traditional religious movements. So I think, you know, looking at the repression is an important, is one side, but looking at the expression of that eros within religious life, and just imagine some religious person uh, davening and shaking uh, his or her body back and forth, uh, that expression is the other side of the equation. But how do secular people or more progressive people, how do they infuse that into their Jewish practice if they're not, if they don't, uh, if they're not religious and they don't put restrictions on their life like kashrut or the other restrictions that come with religious life? Where, where would we find that kind of uh, erotic economy? Yeah, well, I, I don't have an answer to the question of where we find uh, sublimated eros in progressive religion. I think it's really a challenge. 
And I think the more we liberate our sexual beings, which obviously I think is a good thing, uh, the less of that tamped down and pent up energy there is uh, to go into one's religious or spiritual life. You know, for a long time, I was a big fan of, of ecstasy and religion and spiritual practice. Um, yeah, I would love davening with the Hasidim, and I, I would dance, and I would love uh, doing zikr with the Sufis. And, you know, the different ecstatic practices were really appealing to me, and to some extent they still are. But I, I think these days I actually tend to prefer a more contemplative approach, a more meditation-based approach to contemplative practice, uh, and less of the ecstatic piece. And, and partly for that, part, part of the reason for that, frankly, is most of my friends and, and peers who have gotten really into the ecstatic piece, that's a lot of kind of en- energy to tie to a theological worldview or an ideological worldview. It's no coincidence that, that some of the most far, far, far right-wing people in Israel, and I don't mean like just Likud politicians, I mean really way far on the right-wing fringe, are also heavily religious and heavily ecstatically religious. Um, this used to puzzle me how there could be, you know, right-wing settler hippies. Um, but the more you, I think, the more you understand about the nature of that religious practice, there's a lot of pent-up energy in there, and sometimes I find it frightening. Hmm. Religious settler hippies. <laughs> I'm gonna think about that for a bit. Uh, <laughs> I like that. I like that line: "Erotic economy of traditional Jewish life or traditional uh, religious life," and I think. Uh, it's something that I'm interested in exploring because I think that is something that we're uh, many of us seek, um, but it's hard to access if if we don't uh, if we don't have that kind of uh, traditional practice. So I'm actually kind of curious to read uh, some of Jay Michelson's books. I've read the articles, but I've never read uh, I've never read the books, and they sound really intriguing and like they can really speak to um, a modern day spiritual seeker. Uh, so. Michelson is also the founder of Nehirim. It's an organization dedicated to LGBT activism in the Jewish community, and his writing on the subject can be found in the New York Times and on NPR in many places, as well as in his book, God vs. Gay. And in this next clip, he talks about why defending sexual minorities in religious communities is important. I'll just speak from my own experience rather than kind of theoretically. Um, I was in the closet for most of my 20s, and the closet is a very cozy term for what's actually a lot of lies, lying to everybody you know about something really important. Um, you know, whatever we may think about Leviticus 18.22, certainly the Ten Commandments are clear on bearing false witness uh, to other people and to the dearest people in our lives, our family, our friends. Um, and I had no idea what I was carrying around uh, until I did come out. I thought that I was doing what uh, my religious tradition wanted me to do by repressing myself and hating myself and wanting to kill myself. And it seems ludicrous to say that uh, now, but that's really how I felt. I really felt that coming out would be the end of my religious life. Uh, and what I found was actually it was the beginning of my religious life. Uh, it was from where I, from where I sit now, it, it was the most religious thing I ever did. Uh, because it was affirming values of honesty, of truthfulness, of integrity, of uh, being open to love. So these are all values which are crucial, I think, to having any authentic spiritual or religious consciousness. And they're values that are enabled by coming out, if that's one's own story, or by uh, enlarging the heart and enlarging the capacity for empathy and for understanding and for welcoming those we think are, are different. You know, when I look in our traditions, 
um, there are multiple voices, and there are some voices which are not friendly to the stranger, the other. Um, but there are voices which are which make that a central value, you know, not to mistreat the widow and the orphan, to remember that you were slaves in Egypt. I understand that as saying, you know, it's easy to to denigrate the other. We have to remember that all of us have the capacity to be the other. And if we remember back to this shared or imagined historical suffering that we as a Jewish people endured, hopefully that can bring about some empathy. So those are all very important, positive religious values. So can you tell me a little bit about um, the LGBT activism that you do in the Orthodox community? What does that look like? Sure. So um, I was one of the co-founders of a group called Eshel, which is uh, named after the tree that Abraham would welcome uh, visitors underneath this uh, this sort of symbol of hospitality. And um, it grew out of Nigarim, the general LGBT Jewish organization that I founded in, uh, in 2004. And Eshel was really designed to respond to the unique uh, pressures and needs of the Orthodox LGBT uh, community. Um, so uh, it's now a separate organization. It was part of Nehirim at first. It's now its own organization and running retreats around the country and running a speakers bureau where uh, Orthodox LGBT people go to Orthodox synagogues just to tell their stories. Um, not to try to change halakha or change anyone's opinion, just to kind of share their stories and their experiences. And I think, you know, when we work in traditional communities, we have to realize that progress is defined by momentum, not by position. You know, there are a lot of folks in the in the LGBT activism world who just see traditional religious people, whether they're Orthodox Jews or fundamentalist Christians, as, you know, it's like it's hopeless. It's a hopeless case. And that's not true. Uh, change looks different. Uh, in traditional religious communities. It's not, I, I would be very surprised if a significant number of Orthodox rabbis uh, came up with a new understanding of the halakha regarding homosexuality, you know, within the next 10 years, maybe even the next 20 years. But in between where we are now and that, there are a lot of spaces in between. So, for example, a community becoming more welcoming. You know, there are Orthodox schools where people don't, you know, there are congregants who don't keep Shabbos. And they still receive an, an aliyah to the Torah. They still can uh, lead, lead davening at times. They can still take positions of leadership within the shul. You know, that keeping Shabbos, I mean, that's a capital crime. That's way more, that is in the Ten Commandments, and it's, it's far more uh, central, I think, than how we understand Leviticus uh, 18.22. So we, we already know what it's like to welcome people into Orthodox communities who we may disagree with uh, in terms of halakha. And, you know, there's just, there's so much work to be done. There's so much uh, ignorance that's still out there, uh, the view that sexuality is some kind of a choice, you know, like what kind of uh, ice cream you choose to, you know, eat for dessert, or that it's something that can be changed or that should be changed. You know, there are still Orthodox rabbis sending young people to reparative therapy, which is incredibly dangerous, and, and it's neither reparative nor therapy. Uh, it, it can really, it certainly doesn't do any good, and it can often do a lot of harm. So there's a lot of work that needs to be done around just understanding and dialogue, and that is, I think, where the line is. You know, we, it's not about getting Orthodox Jews to support same-sex marriage or something like that. It's it's getting communities to recognize uh, that there are people within their own communities who right now are being really marginalized and hurt. Just about reparative therapy? Is that mm-hmm. something that only happens exclusively in Orthodox communities, or have you seen other Jewish people who've been sent for this kind of therapy to cure homosexuality? 
So I, I've um, you know been active in the LGBT Jewish world for a while. I've never met anyone uh, who was sent to reparative therapy who was not sent from an Orthodox community. Okay. Um, you know, in, as you know, in, in Canada, the conservative movement is a little further to the right than in the United States. Uh, so I, I wouldn't be completely shocked if there were, you know, one or two cases, uh, but I haven't met them. Um, and, you know, there are a number of reasons for that, but it's, it's whether it's the halakha or whether it's the worldview, it doesn't take a lot of researching to uncover the fact that reparative therapy is a crock. Um, you know, it's, it's no surprise that one of the leading Jewish reparative therapy, the leading Jewish reparative therapy organization is being sued for fraud mm -hmm. uh, because it's unlicensed quacks delivering a form of, pseudotherapy that has been completely discredited and which doesn't do what, what they say it does. Um, so, you know, you, you can find that out pretty quickly, but if you're in a traditional community and your first recourse is to go to a rabbi and the rabbi may or may not have access to that information, uh, that's when kids get sent to this uh, horrible form of uh, brainwashing. All right, so that was uh, Dr. J. Michelson author of God versus Gay, and many other books that I really encourage people to check out. And we're going to hear a little bit more from him uh, on the subject of the BDS movement, boycott, divestment, and sanctions uh, against Israel, and uh, what he thinks, whether gay or nay. Um, and I, I think he always has a very interesting perspective on these subjects and um, has written some controversial articles about his relationship to Israel, which is which is quite nuanced. And, um, and I also encourage people to check those out. So we're going to take a break for some music and some ads and we'll be back on Shtetl on the shortwave. This is a version of Col Nidre done by Nicolas Joliette and uh, yeah, a tabla version of a very uh, holy Jewish prayer. And we'll be back in just a few minutes. <laughs> Thank you. 
2013. Three days of free fun for all ages. The party starts May 31st from 6 p.m. at Poos Pop at 105 St. Viature West and continues through June 2nd. Come to Poos Pop Craft Fair to discover the work of over 80 local artists and designers, Saturday and Sunday, 11 to 6. That's not all. Check out our free daytime events. June 1st and 2nd at Gare Jean Talon, Metro Jean Talon. There will be bands and food daily and kids pop June 1st. We're also hosting more kids activities June 2nd at Espace Pop. Full schedule and details popmontreal.com. This is a CKUT co presentation. Hey, music people, this is Leroy Heptone Siblis. Just reminding you that Gold is Production presents Marcia Griffiths and Leroy Siblis. May 18th, Montreal, 5318 North Dames, the corner of Declary. Reggae music once more, once more, once more, more. Hello, this is Charles Brelly, and you are listening to Status, one of the best. Keep listening. Find more knowledge of it.
we're back on Shtetl on the Shortwave and on CKUT 90.3 FM. And that was a station ID by Charles Bradley. I went to see him on Monday night at the Corona Theater here in Montreal. It was one of the best shows I've seen in a long time. And my friends and I actually bumped into him at the bar before the show. And uh, he did a Shtetl station ID. And I, I don't know, just listen to this. What do you think? Hello, this is Charles Brelin, and you are listening to Stettles, one of the best. Keep listening. In one shot, he said Stettel, which is so much better than almost anybody ever does when they try to say Stettel. He was really, really sweet. And if ever he happens to be playing in your town, you should go check him out. We're going to hear one more clip with Jay Michelson. Uh, And this one is about the subject of BDS, which is a very controversial topic in in the Jewish world and a complicated subject. And he has a way of talking about these things that I find very interesting. And I hope people will access some of his articles where he goes into more detail but for now uh, this is um, his take on the BDS movement which is boycott divestment and sanctions. I think a lot of people don't realize that the word Israel literally means to wrestle with God and when a lot of us think about our relationship with Israel it literally feels like wrestling with God would possibly feel especially when it comes to the Israel-Palestine conflict. And so um, you've written a lot about it in a way that I think is very helpful. And so I wanted to ask you um, if you'd be uh, willing to explain very briefly what the BDS movement is, because that's a very controversial issue and where you stand on it. Sure. Well, I'll start by just framing my own or stating my own position. You know, um, the Jewish community has 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 won. Uh, I am no longer part of the institutional Jewish community, and and Israel is one of the reasons. So the right-leaning mainstream of the North American Jewish community has succeeded in exiling me uh, from the table of uh, of Jewish professionals. Um, I'm no longer a Jewish professional. I work for a foundation now that doesn't do Jewish work, do Jewish funding. And um, I am fortunate to be able to have that position. Um, other folks who have my views uh, are having to keep quiet. You know, people come up to me and, and, and I have the same conversations, whether they're closeted LGBT or closeted uh, J Street supporters. Um, they come up and quietly, you know, compliment me on my courage and want to talk privately and say they can't be as out as I am. And it, it is really remarkable. There is a new, uh, this is a, a United States reference, but there is kind of a new McCarthyism now where there are, uh, there's suspicion of anything that's not kosher. And kosher is moving farther and farther to the right. Um, so, you know, my politics are basically J Street politics. I'm pro-Israel, pro-peace. I support a real two-state solution and real negotiations with the Palestinians and not what the current Israeli government does, which is this kind of sham negotiation tactic of saying we'll sit down, but we have to start over from square one as if nothing has ever happened in the last 40 years. Um, and that is a view held by, you know, just under half of Israeli Jews. Uh, it's a perfectly kosher view to have if you're if you're living in Israel. Uh, in the North American Jewish community, it's it's seen as some kind of a tr- some kind of treason, and there are tenured professors I've spoken to who are afraid of their their centers universities being defunded if they were to come out and support uh, that position. Uh, there are gag rules uh, in, at a number of synagogues in Hillel, um, and I myself have been banned uh, from at least one Hillel that I'm aware of. So it's, it's a very, I the think position? it's a very toxic situation, and what we're seeing happen is a, is a very stark choice being put to young people in particular, either support Israel in a certain way, which is right-wing, nationalistic, and flag-waving, or you're on the other, on your, you're on the bad side. 
And so it's not surprising that states with that choice, a lot of less affiliated Jews in particular, are choosing to say, well, if that's what it means to support Israel, then count me out. So uh, the latest front on the, I guess it would be called the anti-Israel side, is uh, Boycott Divestment Sanctions, or BDS. And this is based on the boycott movement around South Africa that ultimately led to, South, to sanctions against South Africa that began on uh, college campuses, uh, was seen as a left-wing movement, but eventually moved into the mainstream. So it's a very systematic approach. Um, personally, I, I do not support BDS, and I, I've said so in print. Uh, but I do support the right of anybody to be on a college campus or to express a view. Uh, I don't agree with this notion that, that to have a political view about Israel is, is anti-Semitic. Um, you, you know, you can have a view that the occupation is deeply wrong, and that occupation needs to be stopped, and this is a tactic to stop the occupation. And that's not my view. But that is a view that is not anti-Semitic. But it's been labeled as hate speech by the Anti-Defamation League and by others. Uh, and this particular political viewpoint is now seen as so trace that we should censor it on college campuses and, and in our own communities. Wait a I think second. that's completely wrongheaded. I think it makes Israel supporters look like bullies. And it, fully, it, it pushes more and more people over to the BDS side. Um, I think what we need to do when confronted with a politics like this is to, is to confront it and to analyze it and to talk about it and to see what's, why Israel is not like South Africa and to see the complexity of the situation and to critique the occupation and not to defend it. Um, but that kind of nuance has been absent uh, so far in the mainstream of the establishment, and uh, that's one reason that I've left it. Okay, so just to clarify a little bit, you say that you are against the occupation? I'm, a, I'm against the occupation, and I'm pro-Israel. And you're pro-Israel. So what is it about the BDS movement that you are not in favor of? Why do you not support that movement? So I think that um, there, are two, there are two main reasons. First, I think the BDS movement has never been clear about their end game, And I've said this all in print in a, in a Forward article. Um, you know, I support the existence of a Jewish state of Israel. The majority of the BDS movement does not, um, the leaders. But if you ask them and, and you, you, know, you really look and see, they're not, they don't come up, and, and up front and say that they actually oppose the existence of the state of Israel. That, to me, is really dishonest, and it, may, and it corrupts the entire movement. I'm, I'm not willing to be in a coalition uh, with someone who, uh, who has such a strong view that there should not be any Jewish state, that every nationality in the, in the world... Uh, to deserve self-determination, except for this one. And the, the second reason is that alongside the, the just those who, who believe that Israel shouldn't exist, you know, there are some really strange bedfellows. I mean, there are really people who have very strong anti-Jewish views and anti-Israel views, and, it, and, and those who are more moderate in the BDS movement, I don't think do a good enough job of calling out those who are more radical. And I think that's the responsibility of all of us, whatever our politics are. If, our, if we have very right-wing politics, I think it's our responsibility to, to call out and say when somebody's racist against Arabs, that's not what I believe, even though I have this, this or that right-wing view. And on the left, if someone is, in, is, is uh, hearing anti-Semitism being, uh, being shouted at their own rally, I think they have a responsibility to say, um, that's not what I think, even though I support BDS. In, so far, in my opinion, the moderates who are involved with the BDS movement have not uh, done that. And I think they've been irresponsible. So for those two reasons, uh, it's not a movement that I support. It's not a politics that I support. Um, but as I said, I, I, like Voltaire said, I may not agree with what you say, but I'll fight to the death your right to say it.
so if it actually if there were actually people within the movements who are speaking out about the more mm. radical fringes in the movement like people who are are spouting anti-semitism or whatever it may be you would you would possibly support the idea of um of boycotting certain parts of israeli society or uh the israeli economy um well, I mean, that gets into tactics, you know, as politics as opposed to tactics. I think the boycott part is actually really counterproductive. You know, the academic boycott right now is just hurting Israel's left. <laughs> so that's not helping. You know, it's not that's not hurting the right wing in Israel. That's hurting the left wing in Israel. The academic community in Israel is predominantly quite liberal and, and both, both left. So I think it's actually just kind of a stupid tactic. Um, in terms of whether it would be a movement that I would support or be part of, it would have to be very, very different from what it is right now. And it wouldn't exist. You know, the reason it exists right now is, is the strength of those who are just anti-Israel. And um, so it's a, it's a bit of a hypothetical question, you know, if the movement were completely different from how it is now, but somehow still a vital force for, uh, for opposing settlements and, and opposing continued occupation and, and the lack of democracy and the lack of basic human rights and the, the contravention of Jewish values in, in the West Bank and Gaza, sure, then maybe, who knows, you know, it would be a different world. So it's hard to answer what that question, you know, what, what that question would really be. All right, so um, that is Jay Michelson's take on the BDS movement. And uh, for, for more about his views on, uh, on religion, politics, spirituality, you can go to jmichelson.net. And thank you to him so much for taking the time to talk to us on Shtetl on the Shortwave. Uh, we're going to take a little bit of a break and come back to uh, speak with Michael Wex about this, um, this novel that could could get lost in the obscurity of history, a very uh, spicy sounding Yiddish novel uh, that I think you're going to want to hear about. But first, uh, this is the Lakes of Canada, and they're doing an a cappella version of a song called Eden, and uh, they're a shtetl favorite band. We'll be back in just a few minutes. When I go down to the garden, I will hold my head up high. And I swear by God I'll know what's right When I hold your hand in mine When I go down When I go down To the garden To the garden I will hold my hand up high And I swear by God I'll know what's right When I hold your hand in mine and all the people won't go, and all the people won't get up, and all the people don't know that all the people will set up, and all the people won't go, and all the people won't get up. Satan demands my soul. And if you see me by the garden, let your heart fill up with pride. Cause I swear by God you'll know what's right When you are by my side And I won't go, I won't go To the God I won't go Even though I, I won't said go. I would meet you there I won't go, I won't go To the God I won't go Satan demands my soul and all the people won't go, and all the people won't get up, and all the people don't know that all the people will. 
was set up and all the people won't go and all the people won't get up Satan demands my soul so and tell me why motherfucking day when I go down to the garden I will hold my head up high and I swear by God I'll know what's right when I hold your hand in mine yeah <laughs> <laughs> All right, we're back on Shtetl on the Shortwave on CKUT 90.3 FM, and we're going to be talking with Michael Wex, who is from Lethbridge, Alberta, and makes Toronto his home. He is the best-selling author of a book about Yiddish called Born to Kvetch, and he has a proposal to help you save one of his favorite Yiddish books ever by a man named Joseph Opatoshu. Michael, welcome to Shtetl on the Shortwave. Oh, thanks, Tamara, and thanks for having me on. Oh, it's a pleasure. Um, it's always fun to talk to you and hear what you have to say. I feel like cool. I'm always amazed by how you know about everything. <laughs> the benefits of unemployment, you know. There you go. Okay. Got lots of time to keep up. Yeah. <laughs> so, okay, who is Joseph Opatoshu, and why is it important to save this book that you that you want us to help you translate? Uh, Opatoshu, the, the fact that you, even, that you have to ask shows... I think what the problem is, Apatoshu is one of the major Yiddish writers of the 20th century, you know, the century in which Yiddish literature really flourished. And because he's never been adequately translated into English, he's completely unknown to the average English-speaking reader, even, you know, people who have a particular interest in Jewish stuff don't know who he is. And yet his position within Yiddish literature, and particularly as a novelist, you know, uh, especially academic stuff about Yiddish literature tends to concentrate on poetry, because there was a great kind of flowering of Yiddish poetry for a good 40 years, and there are some wonderful poets. Uh, the novelists tend to get a bit of short shrift. Uh, you know, famous people like Sholem Ash, who was, you know, a very big deal in the 30s and 40s, and of course Isaac Besheva Singer later, basically are famous because they became best-selling writers in other languages. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, they, I don't know if they could have made a living from their Yiddish uh, alone. Uh, Opatoshu made a decent living as a Yiddish writer. He was popular and and all of that, and apparently just didn't really give any thought to translation. Because he hasn't been translated, people uh, seem not to realize, and this really, this even spills over into some branches of Yiddish-oriented academia, is, you know, his role in the 20th century Yiddish novel is comparable to that of, I don't know, Henry James or Hemingway or Faulkner to the American novel or something like that. You know, he's totally central. And his influence is, it's so strong that you, you can't really trace it, if you know what I mean. He was the first person to do so many things. Hmm. And the book I want to translate is the first sort of modern, that is written in modern times, historical epic, or epic is the wrong word, but you know, 
wide-ranging historical novel written in Yiddish. And it's an amazing thing. The book's called, uh, in Yiddish, it's called In Polish Evelder, which means in Polish forests or in the forests of Poland. Okay. And it manages to cover a very great deal of Yiddish life in 19th century Poland uh, to the point where I think with Glotstein or somebody like quite, you know, a prominent Yiddish writer who was, I think it was Glotstein, uh, the poet, actually compared it with War and Peace. Wow. Uh, except it's a lot shorter than War and Peace. Okay, great. Uh, you know, you know this will take me about a year to translate. If it was the size of War and Peace, it would take me five years to translate. But what is it like... Um you're doing an Indiegogo campaign, and and the way you describe the the novel, it's like it's this uh, perception of the Jewish past, which we would never conceive of as possible, like yeah, wife swapping. And uh, what what it what is the what is the take on Jewish history that we might find in this book that would be surprising to us? I think you know it's it had all the schmaltz taken right out of it. Okay. There's no nostalgia. There's no, these are great old days. The book is set uh, in, the, uh, in the late 1850s. And much of it takes place in the uh, court, as it's called, of the last great figure of classical Hasidism, uh, Mendel Kotzker, uh, Rabbi Mendel of Kotzk, who's a real person, and, you know, appears in the book uh, as a character. Uh, you know, I'm not saying that the character and the real person are the same thing, but uh, he's there, and various other uh, members of that, of that group uh, also appear as characters. Uh, but also much of the book takes place in the backwoods of Poland, so there's no, there's no shtetl. There's no big city with its ghetto. Uh, the main character basically grows up on a farm, surrounded by non-Jews, uh, in a you know living in an intensely Jewish kind of environment, but it only has one house uh, or you know involved in it. So there's none of this uh, you know the, that whole fiddler on the roof thing just falls to pieces in, in a book like this. Okay. And you get stuff with uh, I mean the book is any most of the sex in the book takes place off stage, but they sure think about it a lot. <laughs> and in ways that you might not expect, you know, this book was published in 1921, which means he was, uh, Alpatoshi was writing it around 1918, 1919, uh, in ways that you, you know, might not expect for the time. So it's like what ways? quite steamy in that sense. Uh, well, even the main character, the reason he, he leaves, his father sends him away from the, the uh, estate that they live on, what? His father manages, uh, you know, the agricultural estate of a nobleman. Mm. He sends him away because uh, the main character, his name is Mordechai. Mordechai is clearly on the point of getting somebody into, you know, getting a girl into trouble. Mm-hmm. If he's not reined in. Mm. And they can't even decide if it's going to be a Jewish girl or not. You know, mm. Mordechai is uh, bursting out of his pants. <laughs> so they send him to Kotsk, where he stumbles on... <laughs> Well, Stumbles on Kosk was not that big a place, but there's this whole subplot about uh, followers of Shavtai Tzvi, who was a false messiah who lived mm-hmm. in the 17th century and converted to Islam. Uh, and then there was a group that developed out of that in Poland under the leadership of a guy named Jacob Frank, 
which uh, had, you know, they, they were around for quite a while. A hmm. uh, very underground kind of existence that they had. And one of the things that the novel posits, and there's, I have to say there's no historical evidence for this, was that people very high up in Kosk, including Zareba's son and son-in-law, uh, were members of one of these Frankist sects. Hmm. And one of the things that the Frankists used to do uh, was they would have orgies. And uh, in, you know, in the course of these orgies, or in the course of the book, rather, Mordechai wanders in on one of these orgies that you know, he sort of knew was going on. He basically goes to see what it looks like and is so shocked by it, where Zareba's granddaughter uh, is, uh, is about to be swapped off, that he goes running out, uh, etc. But through that and through these circles, and this part actually is, has some historic truth to it, those circles and radical Jewish political circles at one point tended to intersect, not just in Poland, but in other parts of Eastern Europe. And he gets involved with hmm. Jews who are either assimilated or trying to assimilate, who are heavily involved in the Polish nationalist struggle uh, against Russian rule. And that's a whole other side of, again, of, of Jewish life that y y you do see it in later novels. But you see it in later novels because of what Opatoshu did in, in this book. Oh my God, so I can't wait to read like, it. Yeah, it's got all this stuff in it uh, <laughs> that you, you just, you know, you, uh, you wouldn't expect to find it. It's the kind of thing that, you know, quite seriously would, if you've never read it, your, your ideas about what Jewish life in Poland were uh, are, you know, will be exploded. Because hmm. the other thing is there's actually polls in the book doing something other than getting drunk and beating the hell, uh, beating the hell out of Jews. There are <laughs> polls in the book that do that, too. Okay. But you actually see Jews and Poles uh, relating to each other uh, in ways that are, you know, like in day-to-day -day kinds of ways, where, yeah, there's tension, and or there might be tension. There's definitely each recognizes themselves as, as what they are, but they are able to get along at various points. And one of, you know, one of the points that the novel makes is everything will be hunky-dory and everybody's getting along and some random thing that happens will suddenly destroy that whole, uh, you know, symbiotic relationship. Hmm. Uh, and it's really, it's one of the first novels to, to treat that in, a, in an overt way. You know, I think it's there... Uh, in, a, in a in a covered way in, in almost all Yiddish literature that dealt with uh, you know what it was like to live in in these places but but Opatoshu talks about it explicitly and without being you know he talks about it in in, in a novelistic sense he doesn't stop and give a sermon so it's, okay. it's a fabulous book and it's unfortunately it was translated in, into English in the 30s uh, in a translation that is generally agreed not to have been very good. And I, I definitely agree with that myself. And what I'm trying to do is get this out there so that people can see it. 
So you're offering to to translate it and make it accessible to people online for free uh, forever, yeah. you're saying, and you have an Indiegogo campaign to help bring back this uh, this old Yiddish book. Where, like, so where can people, uh, what can people do to help you in uh, this, to help uh, you bring back the book? Well, to help bring back the book, they can always give money. The idea is mm-hmm. that the Indiegogo campaign is basically to raise the funds uh, to, to do the work. Uh, you know, the time that it would take, because what I'd like to be able to do is devote full time to this and have it out uh, in a year from now. Uh, like you said, the book will be free. It'll be only published online, uh, either as there, there'll be a website, there'll be PDF and uh, ebook versions as well, and they will be free. The easiest thing to do is, uh, you know, there's a lot of information that you can get if you go to my website, which is uh, www.michaelwex.com. And there's that a link? Will, there's a link to Indiegogo, or if you go to the Indiegogo homepage, which is indiegogo.com, and you type in uh, Opatoshu or Yiddish translation uh, in the, uh, you know, the little window where you type things into the search window, <laughs> uh, it should take you to the right page. Okay, I'm there right now, and I see there's 22 days left, and you've raised $14,046 of your $75,000 goal. Yeah, so, yeah, we've got a bit of a ways to you've go. You've got a ways yeah. to go, but I think that, I th- I, I have faith that, that people are going to donate. I'm going to donate. Oh, 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 well, thank you, and I, I sure. hope you're right, because, <laughs> you know, the, the other thing, you know, that I'm hoping to do with this that's not just about Yiddish is, Guys like me, you know, people who do this kind of work but don't have academic uh, affiliations. Yeah. Because the publisher, you know, we, we've been severely affected by the collapse of the publishing industry. Uh-huh. And this is the kind of thing that a commercial publisher wouldn't touch, I don't think, with a 10-foot pole. Hmm. An academic publisher probably would, but they don't really have any money. Hmm. So if you're a full-time writer, a full-time artist of any kind... Uh, it becomes impossible to do this sort of thing. Okay. So, you know, something like this where you just, if you can raise the money, that's all the money you're ever going to get. You know, you go and you do it. There's no question of royalties or anything because, of course, the, the product is free. And the people who donate are donating as, as much. It's like giving money to a library mm-hmm. uh, or something, you know, something along those lines rather than to, to the individual doing the work. Mm-hmm. And I'm hoping, you know, if this can work, this can be a model for people working in, in other areas as well, you know, Jewish stuff, of course, but also any other languages. Mm-hmm. I think it's a great idea, and yeah, I well, and I hope that you I hope you attain the goal. And if you don't, then then we have to figure out what you're going to do next. I guess. Yeah, that's because yeah, <laughs> because obviously we have to read the book. Um, yeah, you know, and and to do it in fits and starts. Firstly, you need that kind of concentration. Right. But also in bits and pieces, and you know, I can grab an hour here or a day there. But you want to really devote and, the year to it. Yeah, you know, you. Uh, the work suffers, and of course, it takes longer to get it out. Okay. You know, what would take a year could take five, six. Uh, a friend of mine in Vancouver who's just come out with, or is just about to publish a book of translations from the Yiddish poet, uh, poet Celia Dropkin. Mm-hmm. Uh, she, my friend Faith, Faith Jones, has been working on that for as long as I've known her. Wow. Which is, 
a while. You know? I can't wait to have her on Shtetl, honestly. I've been reading some of the poems. They're amazing. Yes, yeah. yeah, they are fantastic. Yeah. Uh, I guess... But, you know, that, that took years. That, uh, it takes a long time, right? Because, I think you know, she got to earn a living. <laughs> right. I, I think, I, hopefully, people will be, will be generous. And so I'm just going to repeat it. We, we've got to go because we're coming to the end of the show. People can go to michaelwex.com, and there's a link to the Indiegogo campaign there. And, Michael, thank you so much for taking the time to come on to Shtetl, and I hope you'll come back again soon. Oh, well, thank you, Tamara. Thanks, and again, thanks for letting me come on. Oh, it's, it's a pleasure. Great to talk to you. <laughs> okay, take care. Okay, you too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. So that was Michael Wex, and the book sounds really fascinating. And every time I read anything uh, in translation from Yiddish, I'm always blown away by what I learn about uh, about history in general and Jewish history. I'm always I'm always shocked. So uh, before we end the show, I'm going to play a couple of ads, and then we'll be back to close close things up. The second annual Montreal One Man Band Festival is a unique new music festival that celebrates and showcases the talents and creativity of one man and one woman bands. From May 23rd to May 26th, come see over 50 local and international one man, one woman bands like Steve Hill, Paul Carniello, Bloodshot Bill, Laura Barrett, Chris Vellin, Thomas Truex, Wax Mannequin, Montek. Leader Hosusa, Lonesome Organist, Books on Tape, World Provider, and many more. Four nights in ten venues like Sala Rosa, Casa del Popolo, Divan Orange, and featuring concerts, workshops, parties, and much more. Tickets on sale online at onemanbandfest.com and at local record stores. The One Man Band Festival, Thursday, May 23rd to Sunday, May 26th. Onemanbandfest.com. This is a CKUT co-presentation. Uh, so the ad that you just heard before was for the One Man Band Fest, and it's a festival happening in Montreal. The person who uh, organizes this festival is John Cohen, and his uh, his one man band is called John Cohen Experimental. So we're going to go out with a song of his. Um, he's he's I think he's from Montreal. I know he I, I'm pretty sure he lives here, um, and uh, he's never been on Shtetl, so hopefully we'll get him on sometime soon. Thank you so much to. Jay Michelson and Michael Wex and I hope you guys will all come back in two weeks for another episode of Shtetl on the Short Wave.